This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, preventing drug abuse in school kids in an entirely new way. All the Just Say No and Scare stories do is tell you what not to do. They don't tell you what to do to deal with what's going on with you. The role of personality in drug abuse when Radio Health Journal returns. Adults in the U.S. have an 8 in 10 chance of experiencing back pain at some point in their life. As the pain becomes chronic, many of these patients will be prescribed opioid medication or offer therapies that deliver only partial pain relief. But now, the FDA recently approved a new therapy option for chronic pain. Burst DR stimulation, exclusively from St. Jude Medical, is the latest advancement in spinal cord stimulation for chronic pain patients looking to relieve their pain and help transform their life. Anesthesiology and pain medicine specialist Dr. Dawood Syed tells us more about this new therapy from St. Jude Medical. With the launch of Burst DR stimulation from St. Jude Medical, I have a new option for my patients suffering from chronic pain that improves upon traditional spinal cord stimulation. Burst DR stimulation is preferred by patients, can improve pain relief, and is believed to naturally target the brain's medial and lateral pathways, allowing me to address my patients' emotional and physical responses to pain. To take the next step to learn about Burst DR stimulation, Go to PowerOverYourPain.com. That's PowerOverYourPain.com. Implantation of a spinal cord stimulation system can involve risk, such as painful stimulation, loss of pain relief, and surgical risks, such as paralysis, during the implantation procedure. Patients should talk to their physician to determine if spinal cord stimulation therapy is right for them. Drug and alcohol addiction has become a public health crisis rivaling anything America has faced over the last 50 years, according to a new report from the Surgeon General. And the report has the facts to back that up. More than 20 million Americans have substance abuse disorders. More than 66 million of us binge drink every month. And since 2000, the overdose epidemic has killed more than a half million Americans. But how effective are we at combating it? There's simply no way law enforcement can keep up. And education? That hasn't been very successful either. Millions of us remember grade school and middle school anti-drug programs like D.A.R.E., Drug Abuse Resistance Education, that research has shown are ineffective. So we do have now quite a bit of evidence showing that these programs do not work. And there's even some studies showing that they can have negative effects. So students that receive the D.A.R.E. program or other kind of program where it does rely a bit on fear-mongering result in some students using more substances rather than less. That's Dr. Natalie Castellanos-Ryan, assistant professor of psychoeducation at the University of Montreal. She's a member of a team there that's researching drug education for kids, and she says traditional fear-mongering approaches don't address why teenagers start using in the first place. Some young people will start using substance for internal motivations. Some others will just use for peer pressure or to belong to a social group. Normally what happens is that youth with internal motivations to use drugs uh, because of genetic vulnerability, maybe environmental vulnerability and personality vulnerabilities, um, will start using these substances regardless of the messages they're given and they may then influence their peers. They don't take into account why somebody would want to use drugs. 
They don't take into account that lots of people use drugs in order to feel more comfortable socially, in order to experience some kind of sense of safety, in order to intensify their feelings. All the just say no and the scare stories do is tell you what not to do. They don't tell you what to do to deal with what's going on with you. That's Maya Salovitz, author of the book Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary Way of Understanding Addiction. She has personal experience with the failure of drug education. She says it did absolutely nothing to keep her from a six-year path of psychedelics, cocaine, and heroin starting in high school. She says scare tactics may make sense to the people who develop the curriculum, but teenagers enter a developmental stage where they seek risks rather than being scared of them. She says teens are also at an age when authority figures such as police officers are probably not their favorite people, so having them teach the class may reduce its effectiveness. It also reveals the motivation of these kind of programs, which conflicts with the Surgeon General's plea that addiction be considered as more than a moral failing. The whole point of D.A.R.E. and the whole point of criminalizing drug use is to stigmatize it, and especially to stigmatize the people who get in trouble. I keep arguing all the time that, yeah, if we really believed addiction is a disease, we would decriminalize all drugs and we would treat it like any other disease, which is that you have to have respect and support for your patients, not treat them like dirt. Addicts are not all the same, Salovitz says, and drug education programs based on the assumption they are are doomed to fail. One of the problems with the way we currently approach addiction is it's really one size fits all and we think there's this one addictive personality that's sort of this lying, manipulative, horrible, bad person personality. And actually the data does not find that. People with addiction are pretty much as varied as other people except they tend to be on the extremes. So Somebody who is like extremely bold and careless and antisocial is at high risk, but so is somebody who's extremely careful and compulsive and anxious. The school-based anti-drug program developed by the University of Montreal team is based on a personalized approach. Their research has found that a person's personality traits are very important in determining whether they're at risk of getting in trouble with drugs. Four traits in particular raise the risk of addiction, and Ryan says they can be used to predict which middle schoolers are going to be in trouble with drugs a few years down the road. Those students can then be targeted to receive prevention efforts tailored to their personality type. We all score on a certain level on all these traits. But those that are scoring particularly high on traits like impulsivity, sensation-seeking, hopelessness, and anxiety sensitivity, those are the four traits we have most evidence on, we're showing that they are particularly vulnerable to develop future problems with uh, substance use and other mental health issues. Of the four traits that raise the risk of addiction, Ryan says impulsivity is the most well-researched. When we talk about impulsivity, we refer to a tendency to speak or act without thinking. It's related to uh, cognitive deficits that make it hard for us to stop behavior once we start. So, for example, for youth that's high in impulsivity, they'll have trouble stopping drinking once they start it. So they'll tend to binge drink and try any substance because they can't put stops on their behavior. A second risk-raising personality is known as sensation-seeking. They look for excitement, crave fun, and have a very low tolerance for boredom. Normally, sensation-seekers are pretty well-adapted young people. They do well at school, they're very popular, but they do have a tendency to be some of the first youth to try 
drugs and alcohol, and they do particularly have troubles with binge drinking. But they don't suffer from other kind of mental health issues. Another trait that creates drug risk is hopelessness. People with that trait look at things negatively, are more vulnerable to depression, and often use drugs to numb their negative thoughts. This is the trait that Salovit says put her at risk. She was high achieving, even gifted, but never thought she was good enough. I was just really isolated socially and really lonely and really sad about it. And I thought that I was just bad and it was unfixable. So when I heard about psychedelic drugs, I thought, wow, these seem to sort of open up new worlds to you. I would like to try that. The fourth personality trait Ryan's team has identified is what she calls anxiety sensitivity. That refers to a person's tendency to be highly sensitive to body sensations when they're anxious. Sometimes they feel overwhelmed with these feelings. So, for example, we all feel butterflies in our stomach, our heartbeat raced when we're anxious and not think much of it, but somebody that's, of course, high on anxiety sensitivity will start kind of panicking about the heartbeat changed or their butterflies in their stomach and might think that the worst thing could happen, you know, that they might throw up. They might be using substances to calm themselves down or cope with their anxiety. But not only do different personality types use drugs for different reasons, Ryan says they also often use predictably different drugs. Sensation seekers are likely to binge drink, looking to get wasted. Hopeless types are more likely to numb their feelings with opioid painkillers. Some differences are even more striking. If they try the same drug, people with different temperaments are likely to have completely different physical reactions to them. For example, adolescents or adults that drink alcohol may experience a change in their heart rate, so their heart rate will go up. They're more likely to experience a high from the alcohol, whereas adolescents or individuals that score high in hopelessness or anxiety sensitivity will not experience a change in heart rate or will experience the opposite, will experience a decrease in heart rate. More successful drug prevention efforts will be the likely beneficiary of all these findings. The University of Montreal program, called Preventure, is aimed at middle schoolers. It begins with a questionnaire for students. The personality questionnaire is very simple. We use one that's particularly brief to be able to include in longitudinal studies, 23 items. And the questions for sensation-seeking, for example, would be, I would like to skydive you know, or parachute out of a plane. I would like to learn how to ride a motorbike. Very general questions about kind of uh, whether you like novel experiences, do you like trying new things, that kind of thing that adolescents won't mind talking about or answering questions about. Whereas if you ask them directly about their substance use, then, you know, they feel a bit more nervous about answering those kind of questions. Ryan says those two dozen questions are enough to predict with 70 to 80 percent accuracy which students are at risk of abusing drugs a few years later. That's a high number, a high number of those we can detect that will develop problems. But scoring high on these traits does not mean that you will definitely develop a problem. We are seeing that if we look at those that we select as high risk, it's between 50 and 60% of those that develop a substance use problem or related mental health problem, which means roughly that these kids have a one in two chance. Knowing which kids are at risk and the personality types behind that risk allow Ryan's team to intervene. 
Salovitz says at-risk kids are funneled to two 90-minute workshops where they learn how to cope with their particular deficit. They test the kids months before they actually introduce the program so that by the time they introduce the program, they've forgotten about this personality test they took like six months ago. So then they offer these workshops about shaping your own personality for success. So they select into the one that's related to impulsivity, they select the impulsive kids into there, and the one that's related to hopelessness, they select those kids into there. And of course, the smart ones realize, hey, like all of us share the same thing here, and they ask and they will be told, honestly. But the thing about it that is really good is that it doesn't label them as being at risk. It just says, this is a personality trait that you have. Sometimes people have difficulty managing this trait. Here are some ways you can do it. The interventions include cognitive behavioral techniques that are used to basically target maladaptive thinking or what we call thinking errors that are kind of unique for that personality trait. And you teach them some coping skills to learn how to better manage their personality vulnerability. The Preventure program has been tested in the UK, Canada, the Netherlands, and Australia. And Ryan says the results are extremely promising. For example, in one test, binge drinking among attendees dropped by more than 40% compared to a control group of high-risk children who did not attend. But the benefits don't stop there. There's some evidence showing that those that receive the programs have an influence on their peers and the substance use of the peers is also reduced. So it's a selective program, but can have beneficial effects to the whole school cohort. Aiming prevention efforts at children before their problems with drugs begin has been standard for decades. But now we're beginning to find out the reasons kids start using and giving them the skills to address those needs in another way. You can find out more about all of our guests through links on our website, radiohealthjournal.net. You can also find archives of our programs there, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Reed Pence. Medical Notes this week. After 40 years of declining traffic deaths on American roads, the trend has been going sharply in the other direction the last two years. Statistics from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration show that in 2015, traffic deaths rose by more than 7% compared to the year before. And in the first six months of this year, deaths were up another 10%. Electronic distractions are getting the blame. A lot of parents worry about where to have their new baby sleep their first year or so. Now the American Academy of Pediatrics has chimed in, and they say that infants should sleep in mom and dad's room, but not in the same bed. Pediatricians say that could reduce the risk of sudden infant death syndrome by as much as 50%. Experts have been looking for ways to further reduce the number of SIDS deaths, which have stalled at about 3,500 per year. And finally, here's more evidence that having a lot of fiber in your diet is important. A study in the journal Cell shows that if bacteria in our gut don't get the fiber they want, they start to eat their host from within. Mice who received little fiber in their diets had bacteria that began to eat the natural layer of mucus lining the gut to the point where dangerous invading bacteria could infect the colon. The concentration of especially dangerous bacteria was also higher in the fiber-free mice. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. 
Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.